0: Okay I'm gonna be honest we've got numerous microphones up here if I talk like this can you hear me yeah. Yeah. all right okay my name is Jeff Van Lanningham and I'm an alcoholic yeah. I am delighted to be here I want to thank the committee hold on okay still good Delighted to be here. I want to thank the committee for asking me to participate uh, in this weekend. I apologize for not being here last night. Uh, I had a guy that I have sponsored for a long time uh, who got married and that's significant because back in the day I used to take calls from him where he'd be in tears talking about how no one could ever love him and uh, to get to witness one of the many miracles that we get to see here if we stay here and we immerse ourselves in this program was something I didn't want to miss. So we came up this morning. Uh, I do want—I was going to compliment you on your choice for a Saturday night speaker. And Chris, who's a friend of mine, uh, until she was sitting here pretending to gossip about me right before, uh, <laughs> like a 12-year-old. So um, we're not going to give her any juice. Uh, but I do want to uh, compliment. And then Adam, my friend and who I work with, is going to be your speaker tomorrow morning. So. Great lineup of people. I know a lot of people in the room. I had my friend Kurt ask me, he said he was tired of hearing me, and he asked me if I would start to make up some things, uh, which, believe me, I would gladly do. Uh, But there's too many people in the room who were here when I sobered up. So they're probably going to catch me when I talk about thwarting a presidential assassination or something. Uh, I probably would get caught on that. So I'm going to try and stick to the bare-bones truth. When I'm sitting up here, I recently had someone ask me, what I pray about and uh, there's two prayers that I do the first of which is I ask God to let me be a part of this meeting because when you're standing up at a podium oftentimes it's easy to start to feel removed from the meeting and you can start to easily start to fall into this trap of thinking that your job is to entertain or to be funny or to be insightful or any other thing that my ego is going to come forth and demand that I do and so I don't want to fall into any of those traps The other thing this morning that I asked for was some semblance that I can share with you this morning of my immense gratitude, specifically to this state conference. You know, the North Dakota State Conference, I'm born and raised in North Dakota. I live in North Dakota. I love North Dakota, and I am indebted to North Dakota AA. Yeah. Because it literally saved my life. And uh, if I have in any way, shape, or form, the one thing that I want to be able to do this morning is to convey that thanks and to convey that gratitude. My sobriety date is March 16, 1992. I'm extremely grateful to be able to tell you that. Yeah. I will, uh, if you're like me, I've literally missed half of a speaker's talk trying to figure out how long he's been sober and how old he is, uh, or she. Uh, so March 16, 1992 literally means that yesterday was my 30th and a half birthday. Uh, and I say that because it was my belly button birthday yesterday, so I always know where my sobriety date and my belly button are six months apart. Uh, and so I just turned 52 years old, and I have 30 years of sobriety. So I'll just save you the math. Uh, I was 21 when I sobered up. If you're young, I want to welcome you. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I want to welcome you. Uh, I'm delighted, as I said, to be here. So just to kind of get into it... Um, I I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. I grew up in one of the most pathetic drinking homes that you can ever imagine. Uh, I had a father who was in the Vietnam War. and, And while he was there, he got drunk one night. And he blacked out. And he woke up the next day, and he was mortified that he couldn't remember pieces of the night before. It scared him so much that he never drank again. didn't go to meetings, didn't do anything, just made a decision to stop drinking and never drank again. What the hell? Uh, You know, you gotta push through that, right? you got friends who can fill in the blanks, the bad parts. You ever notice, by the way, on blackouts, they're always bad? Uh, And you've never had a blackout where someone told me anything good, right? I was always throwing up in a washing machine or urinating in a refrigerator. Uh, I was never doing anything good, right? Like, you know what you did last night, Jeff? You got so drunk, you started reading little stories to little blind children. You know, I was never doing anything like that. Uh, I was always doing some self humiliating, demoralizing act uh, and something that I just don't really want to remember. But anyway, so my father never drank again. I've never saw my dad drink a a drop of alcohol in his life. I had a mother who drank one glass of wine on Christmas Eve and she wouldn't finish it. Uh, These were my role models for drinking. So, I didn't grow up in any way, shape, or form. You know, sometimes you hear people talk about seeing the fun and all the excitement around liquor, and I didn't have any of that. I had no plans to drink, I had no ambition to drink, and I certainly had no role model to drink. I grew up with a different kind of problem. I grew up feeling extremely uncomfortable in my own skin. I have always felt like there's this giant hole inside of me, and I don't know where it comes from or what it is. Most importantly, I don't know how to fill it. And I walk around and I feel awkward and I feel. Uh, uncomfortable, and I don't know what to do with this. I'm a guy who feels very insecure by my nature. Uh, I feel like people don't really like me. Uh, I have a mind that races a lot, uh, and I'm constantly overanalyzing things. And I have an ability, I remember when I was in my teens, I was meeting a therapist, and I was uh, discussing all the different things that were wrong with me, and one of my superpowers is I have the ability to tell what people really mean, right? I don't listen to them. I don't, you know, God forbid that. I don't take people at face value, but I interpret what they mean. I do so because I'm a skilled uh, uh, observationalist in the art of tones of voice, body language, right? You know, I can tell, you know, when you say things like, hey, it's good to see you, Jeff, that didn't seem sincere, right? (laughs) Is the way that I naturally react to things. And uh, I don't know why, I don't know where this comes from. Nobody taught me any of this. It's just something I do. And so I'm growing up with this head full of bad wiring, and I don't know what to do with it. And I'm an optimist. I always think it's going to get different or better. I can remember vividly thinking, you know, this fourth grade was a screw-off time, but the fifth grade, this is where you got to buckle down now. And I was always going to apply myself, right? That was my big pledge, is next year I'm going to apply myself. Drunks are eternal optimists. And I've come to believe, I think I know why, but we always think things are going to get better later on. Right? never today it never is today but we're always by god monday we're on a change our life kick i'm going to lose weight i'm going to meet her i'm going to get busy in school i'm going to buckle down at my job i'm always going to change my life later on in the future and i think the reason that we think that and believe it uh because that's the thing i believe it every time i tell myself that is we're such great procrastinators Right? I don't want to do it today, but I certainly want to lay out a whole big litany of things that I'm going to do tomorrow. And uh, every time I do, I genuinely believe that I'm going to, and tomorrow never comes for a guy like me. I think it's very important that we live in a program that stresses one day at a time. I think that's more than just getting through today sober. I think it has to be a way of life for me, because life will pass me by as I push everything off until tomorrow. And so I've got to start learning to live now. And that's one of the many things that you've taught me. So, I have this head full of bad wiring, I'm, I'm interpreting things that aren't really there. I'm the kind of guy who's been trying to prove myself to a group of people that's doubting me that I've come to believe doesn't exist. And, uh, but I always think there's this group who's looking down their nose at me, and I'm going to show them. Right? I spent a lot of my life, I'll show them. Who are you showing? Jeff? them. Right? And if you're an alcoholic, yeah, you know. The people who are laughing know who them are. Right? We never actually met them, couldn't point them out in the room, but they exist. They're out there, and by God, they're going to rue the day that they doubted Jeff Van Liningham, right? Except I'm not that important. Nobody's sitting out there plotting against me. Nobody's rooting for me to fail like I think. Nobody really cares in a good way. Nobody really cares, and what I've come to find out as I've gone through our 12 steps, is the root of my problem is not drinking. The root of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness. I am absolutely obsessed with myself. I am obsessed with what you think of me. I am obsessed with how people treat me. I am obsessed with what other people are getting. The whole world has a plan and design drawn up for me, or drawn up by me for you. I've gotten up every morning, drawn a script out for everyone. If everyone would just listen, we'd all be happy. And uh, nobody follows their role, right? And, uh, and these are the problems that I'm growing up with. I'm a sensitive individual. I get my feelings hurt a lot by dumb things. I'll give you an example of what it's like to be me. I can get offended when I'm not invited to something that I don't want to be at in the first place. <laughs> and it's hard to explain that to people, right? I mean, you know, you, you should. I mean, in AA, for example, we're always moving. Drunks are always on the move, right? We're we're restless, irritable, and discontent, even after we quit drinking. So there's always someone in AA moving. And I got caught up in a group of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Am I still coming okay on the mic? Okay. I got caught up in a group of people in Alcoholics Anonymous where we were going to be of service 24-7. So we were always moving someone. So I'm the kind of guy that you could come up to me and say, hey, we are all going to Ron's house to help him move. Are you coming? My friend Ron I'm picking on. And... uh, (laughs) And this is me. I'm like, no, I wasn't invited. Uh, you know, I'm all kicking rocks. Oh, well, do you want to go? No, I don't want to go. <laughs> Ron's well-to-do. He probably owns numerous pianos. I don't want to be at his move. But, uh, but I want to be invited so I can make up an excuse and say, Ron, I'd love to be there. Ron, thanks for inviting me. But, you know, i got to watch football and, or whatever the case may be. And that's the kind of stuff. Now, none of what I'm describing makes me an alcoholic. I cannot stress this enough, it makes me neurotic, but it does not make me an alcoholic. There has to be one key ingredient that comes into mix, and that is this, alcohol fixes the problem for me. So we talk a lot about the trouble alcohol causes us and the woes that it causes us and the sorrow and all the different things, but once upon a time, alcohol did something for us. I'm convinced that's why we're all in this room. There was a day and age where alcohol did something for me that nothing else could. And for me, what alcohol does is it makes me feel OK, right? I can have a few drinks, and suddenly, the world looks different. Suddenly, everything seems a little bit different. So before we start talking about alcohol, the problem, and all of the different circumstances that it gets us into, and it does, because eventually, alcohol starts doing something to you. And what we love to talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous is what it's done to us. But long before that, I think it's important to note, what did it do for me? And I cannot stress enough, alcohol was a magic solution to a guy like me who was running around with no God, who didn't really connect with people, who didn't fit in, who didn't feel comfortable in his own skin, and suddenly you give me this magic elixir where I can take a couple of drinks and I can start to feel at ease. Right In the doctor's opinion, it describes it as a sense of ease and comfort. Isn't that a perfect way to describe what alcohol does for us? Because the opposite is how my life feels, hard and uncomfortable. So I am just looking for a sense of ease and comfort. When I went out drinking, I didn't go out to get into trouble. I didn't go out thinking, hey, tonight I hope I get rip-roaring drunk, call my ex-girlfriend at 3 a.m. to express my love, and eventually end up in a jail cell. <laughs> None of those were on my agenda. I was going out to experience a sense of ease and comfort. So let's talk about ease and comfort. Let's talk about what it looks like. Uh, I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm at a party. I'm uncomfortable. I'm self-conscious. I'm neurotic. We've established that. And the whole party feels uncomfortable to me, right? I'm standing there. I'm in the corner. I don't want to be a guy in the corner, but I don't know how to muster up the courage to come out. I didn't look at what time I got up, by the way. God, it's 11.15. I hope I didn't get up at 10.45. Um, what time did I get up? Four minutes ago? Oh, OK. Um, I'm talk till 2 o'clock. Uh, all right, well, we'll wrap it up. I promise I won't keep you too long. But I'm at this party, and I'm feeling uncomfortable. And uh, uh, this guy walks in, right? some guy who just looks confident. Everybody's happy to see him. He's got his hat on backwards. I didn't even know you could wear your hat backwards. And uh, this guy's here and everybody's high-fiving him. And I gotta tell you, I hate that guy, right? I hate that guy uh, because I'm secretly jealous. I'm secretly jealous of him and I wish that I were him, but I'm too immature to admit that. And so my reaction is just to immediately hate and scorn, gossip, whatever I do. Uh, And so I'm sitting there and I'm staring daggers at that guy and then right on the heels of him She walks into the room now if you're not familiar with who she is let me uh, illuminate She is the girl of my dreams, right? I don't know her name, but she is the girl of my dreams And if I could just oh, if I could just get her everything would fall into place for me I would settle down. I would apply myself. I would go to class. I mean everything would fall into place but we all know that no girl like that is ever going to be interested in a guy like me and i certainly one of the greatest fears i think most alcoholics suffer from although we don't know it is the fear of public humiliation i can't stand the idea of looking dumb in front of a group of people you ever been in class and the teacher will say like is there any questions and you have a question but you don't want to ask it right for fear of looking stupid Raising my hand, yeah, I have a question, blah, 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 blah. Well, I just covered this, Jeff. Uh, You know, I don't want that to happen, so I don't ask. I just sit there in my shell. And then somebody else always asks the question that I had, right? And what happens? The teacher goes, that's a really good question. (laughs) And I want to raise my hand and be like, I had it 10 minutes earlier. But I'm too insecure to ask it, so I would like credit now. And... um, So I know that if this girl, if I was to walk up to this girl in my dreams and ask her out, that she would, you know, laugh in my face and the whole party would laugh. I mean, you got to remember, I'm self-centered and uh, everyone would make a big deal and it'd be a big spectacle and I'm certainly not going to expose myself to that kind of rejection. That's who I am. That's who I am sober. That's the best I bring to the table. And then I start drinking and I have a few drinks. And by the third or fourth drink, depending upon what I'm drinking, a magical transformation takes place. And everything starts to look different to me, right? And uh, I suddenly stand up a little straighter, right? It's like I have this spine problem and all of a sudden it's fixed. And I stand up and my chest puffs out and I'm looking the world in the eye, right? Now i have gone from feeling so insecure and so out of place to suddenly I'm glad I'm at this party. I'm making this party. Most of these people are chumps who don't know how to have fun. And it all looks different. And now armed with a confidence that a guy like me can never seem to find, I'm going to start writing some wrongs. First thing we're going to do is find Mr. Cool, right? Mr. Hat on backwards. Let's go have a chat with this guy. And uh, I go wander and saunter over to him, right? And I let him know, hey, man, about an hour ago when you got here, there was a little bit of tension between you and I. <laughs> right. He doesn't know this. He doesn't know the neurotic fool in the corner was having an imaginary war with him. Uh, I don't care. Logic's well past the point now. I don't need that. And uh, I let this guy know, hey, if you want any trouble, you found it, baby. And uh, God, I got to tell you, it is so liberating to be able to act like that and talk like that. And I don't even wait for his response. Who cares? This guy just got put on notice. Uh, Now I'm going to go find her. But it all looks different, it all looks different. And I walk over to her with confidence that a guy like me cannot have, does not possess, and I let her know, listen, honey, uh, I'm picking you. And uh, I could have anyone I want at this party, male or female, and, uh, and I pick you. And uh, she doesn't seem to be interested in me, I'm not bothered by that, I don't feel any rejection. Uh, I lock her in a bathroom until she comes to her senses. And." Uh, <laughs> It doesn't matter. Um, Okay. Um, That is what alcohol does for me. Okay. Now, I'm embellishing a little bit. I'm adding a little bit of humorous thing, but I cannot tell you the Jekyll and Hyde effect that it has on me. And so when people start coming out of the woods, as they did relatively soon, to start to express concern over the way that I drank, you can imagine why I would push back. Jeff, we're a little concerned about your drinking. Hold on. I get it. I understand I got out of hand last night, but that's because I was drinking tequila, and tequila makes me violent, right? That's because I was drinking whiskey, and whiskey makes me depressed. Whatever the case may be, I always had a specific reason why it didn't apply to me, and I was going to find a way to control and enjoy my drinking, because the thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that when I start drinking, I seem to lose the ability of control. I'm convinced that if I could have those three or four drinks that made me feel like I was there and then stop, you'd have someone different speaking this morning, right? I would be out controlling and enjoying my drinking, but there's something else that happens with me when I start drinking, and that is I lose the ability to control my intake. I start to drink more than I plan to. That's why so many nights I went out with just this idea of I'm getting there, and I get there and then I overshoot the mark and I get way drunker than I wanted to get alcohol started to do something to me right but it was too late i was chasing that feeling that it had done for me for so long uh, that i was going after that and so i continued on with this ideal that i will find a way the book describes it perfectly the great obsession of every alcoholic right the idea that we will control and enjoy our drinking many of us pursue it into the gates of insanity or death think about the language that bill uses in the big book to describe that how many things have you had in your life that you're willing to pursue into the gates of insanity or death, not counting relationships. Uh, How many things have you had uh, that you would do that for, right? And yet I willingly ride through those gates, why? Because it's the only thing that seemingly has ever worked for me. So I continued on and, you know, as I said earlier, I had no real example, I had no one to uh, uh, explain to me how to be a, a drunk, how to be a drinker, how to do anything, I just picked it up on my own. And I continued on and I went out with good intentions and I was always just gonna have a few and it never seemed to work that way. And I was the guy who was always insanely drunk and I was way drunker than I wanted to be and I was making a fool of myself and I was embarrassing myself. But I was always optimistic that I was gonna find a way to get on top of it and I never did. Ultimately what happens for me and what starts my uh, decline because you know, I sobered up at 21, there's not a lot of drinking in there. Uh, I was at a party one night And I was uh, uh, insanely drunk per usual. Uh, And what happened is I would get drunk and then I would want people to hurt just because I hurt so bad. And it's like I had this petty mentality that if I can't feel better, then I want everyone else to feel bad. And I started hurling all these insults at people and all these different things I could do. And eventually it got to be to the point where I was standing on one side of the room and everybody else was standing on the other. And uh, this girl stepped forward, and I remember just in this calm voice, she said, Jeff, what's the matter with you? And that question stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, I didn't know. I had no idea. I remember I wanted to answer it, but I didn't have the courage to. I wanted to say, I don't know. I didn't go out tonight with this, to, the intent of this happening. I don't want this girl to be crying. I don't want this guy looking at me the way he is. This guy's probably going to want to fight me. I don't want any of these things. I just went out tonight to round off the corners of a life that feels a little too harsh. I just wanted to get there. I just wanted to feel a connection with people, like I always do. And here I am, drunk, making an idiot of myself, severing the little bit of ties that I have left with people. That was the best answer that I had back then. Now, I have a different answer today. I have a different answer because I've been a member of this fellowship for a long time, because I've listened to people like you. My answer, if I could go back in time, would be, I suffer from alcoholism, that's my problem. I suffer from alcoholism, a disease that affects me in a physical, spiritual, and mental capacity. It affects me in a threefold. By the way, I have saw now there's, uh, with the advent of of social media and all these different groups, apparently this has become somewhat controversial. Uh, There are some people out there who are very stringent in that it is a twofold illness that it only affects you in the physical and mental sense. I have no idea where they're getting this information, and I'm not here to judge, uh, but they're wrong. And, uh, um, (laughs) uh, but my experience. By the way, if you want to share something in AA and you don't want anyone to get in your face about it, you always just say, my experience. I can argue with you on your opinion, but I cannot argue with you on your experience. So everything that I'm saying this morning is my experience. It's all right, and uh, um, so my experience with my alcoholism is that it has affected me in a threefold manner. And let's talk a little bit about that. We've talked somewhat about this, but there's this in the doctor's opinion they walk us through this and they talk about they describe something called the phenomenon of craving in the doctor's opinion. Now, when I was new, I had a sponsor who was a big big believer in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and we would meet and we would read it and we would go through and he would always stop And he would ask me words if I knew and understood the meaning to them, to make sure that I wasn't breezing by, uh, which I assure you, I was breezing by a lot of things. But he would stop me every once in a while, and he would ask me things. And we'd get to that part in the book, and he's like, now, phenomenon, do you understand what they mean? This is how I answer when I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And uh, he'd go, "Okay, well, what is it? Well, you know. He's like, yeah, I know, I know. I'm asking you if you know. And so finally, when I'm pressed into a corner, I'm like, well, it's a phenomenon, like Bigfoot or UFOs. And uh, he would just shake his head at me, roll his eyes, and he'd be like, no, we're not talking about Bigfoot or UFOs. He said, we're talking about this indescribable thirst that takes over when you start drinking alcohol. He said, can you get behind the idea that when you start to drink, you can't control your intake, and you drink more than you wanted to or than you intended to? And I'm like, Absolutely. I've lived that. I didn't even know there was a word for it. But yeah, absolutely. I completely get that. So I am right out of the bat. And then my sponsor really broke it down. He said, can you get behind the concept that you're allergic to alcohol? Right? And I really liked this because I have to have things simple. Uh, He's like, you're allergic to alcohol. You react differently. Now think about that in terms of, let's just talk about something else. Imagine say that I was allergic to bananas. And every time I ate bananas, I broke out into red hives. How far down that rabbit hole do you think I go? Do you think I'm changing brands to try and, you know, I don't think Chiquita bananas, Dole bananas I'm sure will be fine. No, I don't keep bananas in the house in case guests show up and want a banana. I don't want to be rude. Um, I don't have bananas stashed all over my house just in case. I don't have a banana in the glove box of my vehicle. And I run out there at noon and scarf it down all warm and mushy so I can go back in and face them. Um, I don't do any of that. You know what I do? I just stop eating bananas. Quite frankly, I don't even make a big deal out of it. I don't take a chip a year later. Hey, everybody. I haven't eaten a banana, by the grace of God, Um, yet. We laugh, but think about this. Far worse things happen to me when I drink alcohol than just breaking out into red hives, right? Why do I continue to go back? Why do I go back? Because every scenario I gave you with bananas, I've done with alcohol. It doesn't seem as funny when you plug in alcohol, right? I do want to keep alcohol in the house in case guests show up. I wouldn't want to be rude, right? And maybe I'll have one myself. And, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, Why do I, why can I not stay away from it? And that gets into the second part of my illness, which is this mental obsession of the mind to drink alcohol. Now, again, when I had that described to me, I remember stopping my sponsor. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not me. I don't sit around thinking about drinking all the time. I'm not as bad as some of you, whatever the case may be. you know, Because I was always, it's a funny thing about AA. I've wanted to fit in with every group of people that I have ever come into contact with except AA. (laughs) Right? It's like I've desperately, I have sold out my values, my morals, and my beliefs to gain acceptance from people that I don't even like. And yet I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I cannot judge my way out of here fast enough. And so I'm in here in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm I'm now needing to quit drinking and I cannot stay away. Why? I remember one time I went through this uh, uh, phase where I told everyone that I was going to quit drinking. I just thought the more people I told, the better my chances were for sobriety. And uh, so I just told everybody, the lady cut my hair, you know, don't offer me any alcohol, I quit. And um, I've never had a hairstylist offer offer me alcohol, by the way, but I thought better to hedge my bets. And uh, I went on this trip after I told everyone and and I was sitting in the back of this car and there's this cooler next to me. And the minute we got out of town, I've got my hand in there grabbing a beer. And my buddy, who's trying to be helpful to me, he's like, hey man, I thought you quit drinking. And this was my response, again, not on road trips, And uh, that, I got to tell you, that made perfect sense to me at the time. Perfect sense. By the way, the kind of people I drank with, it made sense to them too. They're like, yeah, that'd be extreme. And uh, off we go, right? But I have something inside of me that no matter how much I'm not supposed to drink this, all of the pain, all of the misery, all of the promises. You know what every promise, every oath, every contract I've signed, you know what they all had in common when I pledged to quit drinking? I meant every one of them. Every single one of them was done with sincerity. I just cannot live up to it. I lack the needed power to stay away. And so I'm on this trip and you know I, I get insane. By the way, I never actually tell the end of that story on the road trip. I just tell that part to illustrate the, the mental obsession of the mind. Uh, but I ended up getting super drunk and we went to Minneapolis. And by the time we got to Minneapolis, I was convinced Uh, that my friends were all stealing from me. I have no idea where I came up with that idea. And so I got out of the car in downtown Minneapolis and just jumped into the next car. And this was the way I jumped into the car. I got a lot of money, drinks are on me. And uh, yeah, this guy was like, yeah, party. Uh, But he wouldn't take me home. Uh, Finally, I'm like, hey, I gotta go home. He wouldn't take me home. So I was kidnapped, is the way the story ends. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. Um, So I have this mental obsession of the mind to drink alcohol. And once that happens, once I succumb to that, a phenomenon of craving takes over and I decide to get way drunker than I ever planned. In and of itself, what I'm describing, this mental and physical side of things, uh, would kill me, a miserable death. One of the things about an alcoholic death is most of them are not quick. Alcoholism is a terrible, terrible way to die. And I heard it described one time, it's like being kicked to death by rabbits, right? It's a slow, tedious process and it robs you of your dignity and it robs and it hurts the people who have the audacity to love and care about you and at the very end when it's taken everything from you finally does it have the decency to kill the patient it is not a good way to die and yet we have a choice we have a choice in front of us right we can find the softer easier way and thankfully on march 16th of 1992 that's been the one that i've chosen was to come in here and to listen to people like you Um, Oh, I'm not done describing alcoholism, am I? Um, Sorry. (laughs) These sidetracks. Lastly, uh, this physical and mental side are bad enough, uh, but we haven't even gotten to the third and what I consider to be the most deadly. uh, This spiritual malady. This idea that I am disconnected from something that I cannot be disconnected from, right? I have no God in my life. And I know The thought of God, sometimes you don't want to hear that name. And sometimes people tell you, you can't talk about that because the newcomers become uncomfortable. Tough. I got to tell you, alcohol makes me far more uncomfortable than your talk about God. And the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is your God. You don't have to find ours. You don't have to find mine. Find one that works for you, whatever that may be. Whatever power greater than yourself that you can connect with and allow into your life and allow some good orderly direction to start to flow in, Find it, whatever that may be. Maybe it's a sponsor. I know that's heresy to say sometimes. Maybe it's your home group. Maybe it's the state assembly. Maybe it's whatever. Find what works for you. But I have this disconnect, right? this disconnect from a power greater than myself. And to put that into perspective, we have this microphone here. This go for state's mic? This yours? Yeah. Okay. we have this microphone here. And you can see the cord. And the cord goes somewhere. And eventually, it goes to a power source. And that power source somehow connects into wire. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I just know that if I unplug this microphone, it's not going to work. It's disconnected from the source of power. In much the same way in my life is true. If I am disconnected from the power, I am not going to work all of the great self-help books that I want to read, all the good intentions that I have, all the promises that I make. The problem is I lack the power to fulfill them. I lack the power to execute on it. And so what I've got to do is find a way to get connected because if I can't, I will always resort to my natural state sober, which is increased feelings of restlessness, irritability, and discontentment. I want to repeat that. That's how I get sober. Sometimes I think people think that's how you get drunk or that's how you are hungover. That's how I get when I am left alone with no solution. Remember, alcohol is the only solution that I have. If you take it away and you do not replace it with something else, I will always exhibit more signs of restlessness, irritability, and discontent. My restlessness looks like this. I am not living the life that I'm supposed to be living. I'm not in the right job. I'm not with the right person. Something is going on. It can be big and it can be small. I'm sitting at a red light and this is not where I belong. I should be two cars down. Whatever the case may be, I spend a lot of my time wishing that something were different, but doing nothing to make it happen. Irritable. I walk around with this huge chip on my shoulder and I'm tired of feeling this way and I'm tired of other people having life handed to them on a silver platter when I have to work so hard for half the results blah 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 and I get into this huge amount of self-pity and discontent everything loses its shine to me and I react very immaturely to that and uh, I don't like it right I just I, I become dissatisfied I love everything when it's new I love relationships when we're in the puppy dog phase. I love work for the first three weeks when nothing's really expected of me. You know, hey everybody, Jeff's here. He's working, this can be great. I don't, I'm new, so let's not expect too much, but I'll have coffee and sit around and BS with you. And, uh, but eventually the day comes where they expect something from you, and I don't really like that. Uh, a new car, right? I buy a new car and I'm so fickle that I literally feel more confident now because of the car I'm driving for a little while. Driving a new little red sports car. And one day, I pull up to a stoplight, and somebody pulls up in the exact same car, only theirs is black. And what do you think I think? Should have got the black one, right? And uh, that's how I live my life. And if I cannot find a way to address that, I will always return to drinking, always. A mind that tells me it's okay. It doesn't matter how long I've been sober. Doesn't matter how many blessings I have, or how many people I've sponsored, or any of this stuff. My mind, if I rest on my laurels, will lead me back to drinking. And I know that about myself, right? And so unless I—so, what's the solution to all of this? Unless I find a way to have a psychic change, a spiritual experience, setting, casting aside old ideas and attitudes for a completely new set, having a personality transformation that breeds, brings about recovery, call it whatever you're comfortable with, but unless I find a way to tap into a power greater than myself, I am doomed to live this life until it kills me. That's what I'm dealing with. And that's what I would have told that gal way back when at that party when she asked me what's wrong. I bet they'd have been pretty impressed if I had rattled off that answer. Um, but I continued on and, and uh, in the interest of time, I, I won't bore you with all the details of what alcohol did to me. I've had, you know, Adam asked me to share this, so I'll share this story with you. Um, I went, I was, I don't know how old I was, but I went to a party and, and uh, nothing new. She was at the party, I was drunk, you know, we've heard this story before, we've all been there before. Uh, I went sauntering over to her and I remember as I was walking towards her I had this great idea. I have two light bulbs that can go off on my, above my head by the way. One is a good idea light bulb that rarely goes off and then uh, right next to it that looks very similar is an alcoholic idea light bulb and I often confuse the two. And this was one of those times where it was the alcoholic light bulb going off, but I thought it was the good idea light bulb. I'm like, ah, what a great idea. And the idea was this, tell this girl the truth. Rarely a good idea for me, rarely a good idea for people like us. So when I got the time I got to her, I said, look, I don't want to, I forget how I said it. But I started talking to her, and I, I remember I told her that I'd been following her around. And, uh, Yeah. I know, she was deeply offended and apparently a little scared by that and uh, (laughs) I didn't understand that at all. I'm like, you know, this is dedicated romance here and uh, I remember she finally, she's like, you scare me and I want you to leave and I was, that was not the way I saw this playing out at all. And uh, so I remember I overreact, that's another thing I do and I'm like, okay, fine, you want me to leave, Uh, I'll uh, kill myself and uh, (laughs) off I go. because I've always had this philosophy of see how bad you feel tomorrow when I'm dead. And uh, that makes perfect sense to me. And so off I went to my dorm room. I was going to college at the time, and I was taking sleeping pills. And Something snapped inside of me, though, on, my, on that long, stupid walk back to my dorm. I just, the little bit of hope, you know, I talk about, uh, one thing about being a procrastinator is there's built-in degree of hope, right? That's the, that's the plus side to it, is, you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to get on. T-. And I no longer had any tomorrows. I just was like this is the way it's going to be for me forever and i'm sick of it and i'm sick of me and i'm sick of living like this and i just i want out so i got home and i took a handful of sleeping pills and i waited to die and uh, some friends of mine had had come back and and followed me and and uh, they come in and and they're like you know what happened what did you do and i was kind of proud of the fact because i you know made this big declaration that i was going to kill myself and for once I'd actually done something that I said I would do. So at least I was dying on a high note. And uh, so I told them, I'm like, yeah, I OD'd on sleeping pills. And they got whew, very interested, very frantic. And one guy, I remember he sits down and in a calm voice, he's like, Jeff, we got to get you to the hospital. Because if you don't talk to a priest, uh, your soul can't be admitted to heaven. <laughs> so many things wrong with this statement. I don't even know how to break it all down for you. Uh, why are we going to the hospital to see a priest? I'm not Catholic. What the hell does this even mean? And, uh, <laughs> But again, as I said earlier, logic has no place for me. And, and so I'm like, Yo, oh my God, let's go. And uh, we go to the hospital and, and uh, we get there. And uh, nurse met us and you know, she, she was very interested in what had happened. And uh, she's like, I need to know what you took. And I remember I handed her the bottle. I'm like, I took a handful of these. And I, remember, I remember it's clear as day, even drunk as I was. I remember she looked at it. She looked at me and she started laughing. Right, And I mean a big belly laugh, not a suppressed giggle. And uh, I remember thinking, what the hell is wrong with this nurse, right? There's nothing funny about this. This is a sad day, right, that a person of my potential. And uh," because that was my other battle cry. If you're an alcoholic like me and you've never actually applied yourself anywhere, you've been told how much potential you have. Uh, I made the mistake of telling my sponsor once, when he was in my face a little much, uh, about how active I needed to be in A. I'm like, yeah, you might want to back off. I have a lot of potential. And uh, boy, he was very interested in that. Um, and he, uh, he's like, really, you have a lot of potential. Yes, I do. Got 12 report cards from 12 years of school to prove it because they always wrote it on the back. And uh, he's like, do you understand what potential is? No, I do not, but I know that I have a lot of it. And I know <laughs> you should respect that and be, go easy on me. And he said, potential is unused energy. That's what you're bragging about, is you have a lot of unused energy. Okay, I don't like the way it sounds coming out of your mouth as opposed to the way it sounded in my head. So anyway, I'm, I'm in front of this nurse and I'm thinking, this is not funny woman. Uh, this is a sad day that I'm dying and all my potential is being lost. And uh, she holds up the bottle and she's like, Jeff, what you took were vitamin C tablets. And uh, I was so drunk, I would grabbed the wrong bottle. and. Uh, Although I have to say, I I didn't, I wasn't even phased. I'm like, well, I took a handful of them. So, you know, (laughs) sayonara. And uh, uh, I did not die. I I did not die from, I actually felt pretty good the next morning. Uh, So anyway, um, but I continued on and and had different things happen. And ultimately, I've been through treatment a few times. I've been arrested in a foreign country because I thought the local police were copping attitude with me. Uh, I've just, I've had a lot of things happen that should have been the wake-up call and were not. Uh, and finally, I got into uh, uh, treatment when I was 21. Again, I'm just gonna say this, I, I, I don't know why, my experience, um, I think sometimes AA takes a, a, um, an adversarial relationship with treatment centers. And uh, I think there's a need for them and I think they provide a good service. And the ones that did me, I'm not here to talk on their behalf, I'm not uh, affiliated. Uh, But I will say this, that I was in a really good treatment center that knew what to do with people like me. And they gave me some information, but my problem is not information, my problem is action. But most importantly is they started busing me to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what they did right, and they brought me to you. They knew that this spin dry was only going to be a temporary solution for me. They knew that people like me were going to have to find a long-term solution, and that's what happened, is I got brought to you. I was 21, I was scared, I was alone, I didn't know what to do. And there were people in the rooms who just took time. And I don't mean that they took me under their wing and took me out to coffee and all that stuff, but even something, I'm so insecure and I always feel so out of place that even a casual hello, a handshake, a hug, all these little things, because I told you I'm an expert reader on body language, but that goes both ways. And just those little moments of acceptance kept me here. And the longer that I stayed here, the more that I learned. The more that I learned and the more that I heard, right? And I started to find people just like me. I've spent my whole life feeling like I'm terminally unique and that I'm terminally different. And. Uh, uh, and I came in here hoping that was the case because I wanted to leave, as I said before. I didn't really want to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. But I stayed here and I identified with the way that you drank. It started there. I remember hearing people talk about the way they drank and I'm like, yeah, I did that. I remember people sharing things like, I used to embellish how much I drank because I wanted to look cool. And then I, got, I started drinking so much that I started to minimize it and lie about it. And I had done that. I had been on that journey. And uh, I stayed here. I got a sponsor. I was uh, uh, back in the day, you know, uh, th- you couldn't go very long. There was this group of people. I mean, I was going to the 515 in Minot, North Dakota, because they told me this is the cell that there was two clubhouses in Minot at the time. There was the 700 and the 515. And the way it was told to me is the 700 is a bunch of goody goodies. And the 500, they like to swear and smoke, or the 515. I'm like, I'll be at the 515. And uh, by the way, I've come to find out both of them like to swear and smoke. But. Uh, <laughs> I was given bad information. So I would be at the 515, and this group of people would come in, and this bunch of young guys, and uh, they were always asking all these questions and winking at each other and slapping each other's behinds, and it just seemed odd. And, uh, but one of the questions they were always asking is, you got a sponsor, you got a sponsor. They was always asking if you had a sponsor. And so finally, just to shut them up. Uh, I asked this guy to be my sponsor. I was about six months sober, the paint was starting to chip on sobriety. I wasn't feeling it anymore. I was crying myself to sleep. This was, I've been told this was the answer all my life and suddenly it doesn't feel like it is. And I got in working with this sponsor and, uh, and things changed, right? What I've come to believe about myself is that I will never think my way into better living. I have to live my way into better thinking. And for me, I had to start to take the right actions. I met that sponsor. I think I talked about this a little bit earlier. And we went through the book. And I found out that in the book, the, the secret or the, the instructions for the 12 steps are cleverly hidden in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had no idea. Uh, and so we got into chapter three and more about alcoholism. And in there, I discovered what step one really meant. Not to say that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives would become unmanageable, is wrong or in any way. That's, but they were different in, in chapter three. They worded it we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were real alcoholics. That hit me hard. I understood what that meant. I remember doing that. It wasn't saying I'm an alcoholic at some meeting. If that's your step one, more power to you. But I'll say whatever just to fit in. It doesn't mean I believe it. It doesn't mean I mean it. But I remember looking in the mirror. I remember looking in the mirror going, my God, I'm an alcoholic. And I remember what it feels like when you make that admission, the idea that I apparently can never drink again. My future looks a little bleak when you take alcohol out of it. And I remember continuing to move on into we agnostics and talking about step two. I remember my sponsor asking me, what would your life look like if you had a God in it? What would it look like if that God loved you? What would it look like, to borrow my friend Ron's phrase, what would it look like if God loved you like there was no one else, right? What would, would you act different? Yeah, I would. If I got up every morning and I knew there was a God out there, I knew that he had a plan for me, I knew that he loved me like no other, you bet I would act different. I'd slow down, I'd calm down, I'd ease back on my anxiety, I'd ease back on my trying to control the universe, right? I would act different. And my sponsor told me, I can't prove to you right now that there is a God, but I want you to start acting like there is. And that's what I did. I got up every morning and I acted like there was a God. And it felt very phony. But let me tell you something. Being a phony is nothing new to me. At least I'm doing it for positive effect this time. Uh, And so that's what I started to do. Then we got into step three, right? Made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. And in how it works, chapter how it works, in step three, we're going to make a turn, right? And we're going to stop talking about drinking and we're going to start talking. They're going to introduce this concept that is so foreign to me, this idea that selfishness and self-centeredness are the root of my problem. I got to tell you, I was not readily willing to accept that. I was not like, finally, we can talk about this. I've been knowing for a long time. But um, I don't believe that. The truth of the matter is that when you get told that for the first time, and maybe you're new here today, you're not sitting here going, yeah, Jeff, Jeff's speaking my language. I'm selfish and self-centered. I've known it. No, we don't think we are at all. That's why the next step, step four, it's designed to prove to me what they just told me about myself. You're selfish and self-centered. I don't know about that. Well, then do an inventory. I think step four, by the way, gets overlooked. Anytime I'm at a meeting and step four is the topic, inevitably they start talking and bleeding into step five. Everyone wants to talk about the secrets. Everyone wants to, by the way, if you're hung up, I'll get to that in a minute. Remind me to come back to secrets. Uh, But step four has nothing to do with reading it to a sponsor or a priest or anyone else. Step four is a journey I take, an introspective journey, where I look at my resentments, where I look at my fears, I look at my sex conduct, and I come to believe that what they just told me about myself is true. Because I got to tell you, I have some pretty strong opinions on how things ought to be. And uh, I see that. When I got done with my fourth step, I remember I came up my wife at the time, her girlfriend, I don't know what she was, but uh, she was standing there and I'm like, I've got this look on my face. I'm all ashen and white. And she's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I just read my four step. She's like, yeah. I'm like, do you realize that I absolutely insist on having my own way in everything that I do? And she's like, yeah, I picked up on that on our first date. And uh, <laughs> it was news to me, man. I got to tell you. Now I'm going to go read this to someone. Now the big thing, right, this is what everybody fears. This idea of reading my four step to someone. Oh my God, what will they think? And we all have secrets. We all have, if you're really sick, you have those things you didn't even write down, right? I've got my inventory, I'm all ready to go, but I, there's a couple things I didn't write, write down. I'll mentally prepare to me- you know, mention those. Because I was always worried that like some police would pull over, get me that four step, we're gonna publish it, uh, <laughs> so. Um, but I want to tell you right now, if you have something in your life, you don't say it out loud. Just think about it. Just think about it in your mind right now. The worst thing that you're going to admit on a fifth step, I promise you, it is fear, or it is sex or money related. End of story. And if you're really sick, it's both. And uh, that's it, right? Because there's only so many things you can do with the, the human body. We can only get into so many jackpots. And so I read this inventory to my sponsor, and I remember he said to me, welcome to the human race. There was nothing on there that prevented me from living a happy, joyous, and fulfilled life. And I moved on. I moved into step six. Step six is another one that I think is often overlooked. Because there's such a short little synopsis in the book, we assume it's not that important. But in step in the 12 and 12, Bill Wilson says that step six separates the men from the boys. Think about that. If I didn't tell you that and you didn't know that, if I said, what step do you think Bill thought separated the men from the boys? How many people would guess step six right away? Right? five, nine, three, one. I mean, I would guess through a lot of steps before I came to six. Why is six so important? Why is it so important to become entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character? Because this is where the change is about to take place. I am no longer in management in my life at step six. I'm getting removed, right? It's time that they've called me in. Jeff, come on in and shut the door. We'd like to have a talk with you. We know you mean well. We know you've tried hard. It's just not working out for you in management and management in your own life. You're being relieved. And uh, God's in charge. And uh, that's what's happening to me. I'm becoming entirely ready. And when I can say to myself that I am, I humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings, right? And I start to have these things taken away because I cannot fix me. One of the hardest lessons that I had to learn was I cannot fix me no matter how great the necessity or the wish I can't learn enough about me. I can't uh, uh, get on enough self-help, self-help kicks. I just can't. And by the way, I promise you, I'm keeping an eye on the time. I think I got up here at noon. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, noon. I got up here in the future. And uh, you know what I mean. Um, I think I got up here 50 minutes ago. Anyway, let's finish the steps. Um, eighth step, right? says something interesting in the book. We made our list when we took inventory. Hold on. Right? Nobody told me that. Imagine if they'd have told you that when you were doing your inventory. By the way, this is the people you'll be making amends to. Bullshit. And uh, I'm not doing that. But now I've got this list of people I resent, things I'm afraid of, and sex conduct I've had over the years, and I've got to transfer it all onto this list. And now I have to go out and make amends. Now I have to go out. And my amends were very specific the way that I had to do them. I didn't get to go and say, hey, Ron, I, I owe you an amends. We both said some things that we regret. No. I am not there to pull in Ron whatever I think he did. I am there to say, Ron, I was wrong. I wasn't at your move because you own too many pianos. And I, I was wrong. And now I want to make things right with you. And that's it. That's it. Um, and that's how it went for me, is I had to go and make these amends. And I do them on their time. When it's convenient, Ron, I'd like some time with you, whenever it works for you. Not, Ron, I've got to talk to you. Come over here right now. Because um, I did do that to some people. And, uh, and now is where the promises are listed. Right? The ninth step promises, and I believe they're there for a reason, because I believe this is where the rubber meets the road. I believe this is where the change really... Now, this is where you start to see it. You know, watching yourself grow in A is like watching your hair grow. Right? You don't wake up one morning and be like, whoo, look how long and flowing my hair is. It's a slow, arduous process, but it will come. And on step nine is when I started to see that I reacted differently, that I responded differently to my fellows. Step 10, I want to continue to take a personal inventory because I'm not cured of alcoholism. All I really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. What does that mean? It means I have to continue to do these things. Resentment will creep up. Questionable sex conduct will. Fear will creep up. All of these different things will continue. We're not cured. We're not anything. Step 11. I believe step 11 is where I finally implement the decision that I made in step 3 to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I've gotta do work. And that work requires me to pray in the morning, initiate contact, it requires me to check in with God uh, throughout the day and it requires me to do that little inventory at night to see how I'm doing. And if I start to do that on a regular basis, a funny thing happens. I improve my conscious contact with God, right? Which is what I'm trying to do, which is the great aim. Only one thing left after that, I now have a responsibility to carry this message to others to serve others as you served me. And this is where I think it gets interesting, and I will say this, and I I mean no joking in in this in any way, shape, or form. My experience is that there's lots of different ways to do this. You know, Cody mentioned uh, uh, earlier that I sponsor a lot of people, and I do. I don't say that to be arrogant. I don't say that cocky. I don't say anything. I'm a horrible group service representative. I don't do that stuff well. Uh, I don't bring anything to the table, and I'm bored, and I'm pacing, and I have ADD, and I can't pay attention, but I, I tend to be good at sponsorship, and so that's my lane. I think if somebody asks you the question, what are you doing for Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to have more of an answer than just, I show up to meetings. What are you doing? Do you sponsor people? There's a lot of people in that room and a lot of people in this room who easily can answer that question because you're performing a much needed and great service to Alcoholics Anonymous to ensure that we continue to get to be here. You know, I have a, I don't have the time to get into this, but I have a a daughter who is uh, uh, four months sober and uh, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to tell you how, uh, how twisted I am. She's 21. And as I told you, I was 21 when I sobered up. And I've already thought, how cool will it be that we both sobered up for the rest of our lives at 21? No pressure there for the little girl. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, she'll be fine. Um, But it's a funny thing, by the way, on a side note. Uh, I I work with people. I, I sponsor people. I'm good at handing out advice. I'm good at telling people what to do. I'm good at staying principled. Yet I cannot help my own daughter. Here my own daughter walks in and she's like, Dad, I need help. And I'm like, let me introduce you to some people. And that's what I did. I took the most valuable thing that I have, and I gave her to you. That's what I had to do, right? Because I'm too emotionally involved to sponsor that little girl, or to even help her. And you've done a masterful job and a beautiful job. And I, if I had gratitude for what you've done for me, it has exponentially grown for what you've done for her. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It is a privilege to get to carry this message. And I'm not talking about from up here. It's just a privilege to sit down from someone To be able to share experiences that once upon a time you were so ashamed of, so remorseful about, and they become our most valuable assets. You know, I can sit down, I've had a lot of bad experience. And one of the reasons uh, that I work with a lot of people in AA is I have a lot of bad experience in AA. When people call me up and say things like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it, I'm at five years, and it feels like there should be something else and I'm missing something, it's like, yeah, I get it. I've been through that, five year menopause. I know exactly what that's like, and I know how to get through it. When you get to 10 years and you're like, man, I thought I'd be further along than this. Yeah, me too. I did too. I thought I'd be a holy man by the time I was 10 years sober. <laughs> and I seem to have more defects of character than when I sobered up. So I don't know how that happened. Uh, I completely get it. It is a privilege to carry this message and to be an example, good or bad, as to what we do. i want to give you one story and then I, I think I'm going to sit down. How am I doing a time? Yeah, I got time. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the, the point of this story, I think, is to illustrate the God that I've come to find, the God that you introduced me to, and why it's you that has introduced me to him. You know, there's a lot of great organizations. There's wonderful churches. There's wonderful spiritual movements. Why is it Alcoholics Anonymous where I hear the music? Why is it Alcoholics Anonymous? I don't know, other than you're my people, right? And to give you an illustration of what I mean by that, a couple of years ago, I turned 50, and and when you turn 50, you're supposed to have a colonoscopy. You know, it's just a standard. And so I'm like, all right, fine. So I went in to do this because I'm a responsible citizen now, and I do what I'm told. And uh, because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even done it, to be quite honest, if I didn't have AA and people that are teaching. Hey, it's good to pay attention to these things. So I went in, and unbeknownst to me, uh, a nurse that was worked in that department was called in because they were so busy. Uh, I would find out later as the nurse came out, it's a guy I sponsored. Guy I've sponsored for 15 years, right? That's a coincidence, whatever. Not a big deal, but it'll be kind of fun. So he's gonna be in on my procedure. And uh, okay, which is kind of important because I'm about to get bad news. And I get out of this procedure and uh, doctor comes in and he says, yeah, we saw something we don't like and um, we're gonna need to do some more tests. And you start hearing the words you don't wanna hear. You start hearing biopsy and you start hearing malignancy and you start hearing cancer and all these different things and all of a sudden my world was turned upside down right and i had this guy i had sponsored him to help him get his nursing license back i sponsored him through all of that and now here he is this nurse and he our roles have completely reversed and now i'm calling him and we're talking about all my different options i remember one night in a fit of panic i remember calling him asking him am i going to die you know, and he's this Italian guy, older guy. Get out of here with that, right? And I just, I needed that reaffirmation. But we researched and we eventually worked on the, the, the surgeon and, uh, and he was with me every step of the way. Uh, by the way, I'm just gonna finish the story and then get back to the real point. Uh, and eventually they went in and they took out a big section of colon and they took all the ickiness out. And they didn't take my alcoholism out, that stayed. But uh, uh, they did take out all the cancer and it's all clear and good. But why I bring that story up is um, I had a faith in a God that you showed me. You know, I was able to walk through that and start to face my own mortality and the possibility of my own death with a degree of dignity. I'm not saying I was the whole time, but I wasn't panicking. I didn't drink. Uh, I didn't take it out on my family. I didn't do a lot of the things that I could have. Now, who are the people who introduced me to this God, right? Is you. Who are you? Who are you? I'll tell you who my people are. That nurse, the guy who stayed with me the whole step of the way during that first procedure, when they discovered that there was cancer. It was a couple of days after that. It was a pretty tense time. And I was at home and I was getting dressed and my wife is looking at me and she goes, um, what is that on your backside? And I'm like, what? And she's like, you might want to go look in the mirror. So I go in and look in the mirror. I'm thinking now what, you know, melanoma. And, uh, I go in and look in the back in the bathroom on the mirror. This guy, this nurse. Yep. He's drawn his name in a heart on my ass. <laughs> Who? What kind of demented mind? Oh, here's my sponsor laid up. I'm grateful to this man. He's helped me a lot. I know what'll help. <laughs> That's my people. That's you, right? There's a message of God everywhere, I believe. And there's a lot of good people better than us that have it. I just don't hear them. I don't. But I hear it with you. I hear it with the way that you laugh. I hear the fact that you laugh at that story. I accidentally told this story at an Al-Anon meeting one time. Big mistake. They don't laugh. Oh, my God. And uh, I love Al-Anon, but they don't get it. And uh, obsessed with people when you could be drinking. Um, You get it, right? I belong here with you and I've been here with you for the last 30 years, right? It's been a privilege to trudge this road and I guess I would say this, North Dakota AA, thank you for taking me in. Thank you for showing me the way home. Thank you for taking in my children who are now coming in the doors. I am immensely, immensely grateful. God bless.